you would uh, open your copy of the Word of God with me to Isaiah chapter 6, the sixth chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, and we will read from that passage momentarily. But let me first ask you, if God Himself suddenly appeared to you in a vision of some kind, how do you think you would react? Would it be with joy and rejoicing or terror or something in between? Well, one day sometime around 740 B.C., the Old Testament prophet Isaiah saw a vision of God and it caused him to see some other things a little more clearly as well. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. As I read this, listen attentively. The Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Thank you. Please take your seats. In this passage, we see that essentially Isaiah saw three things. The first and foremost, which allowed him to see the others, was that he saw a vision of God. It came in the year that King Uzziah died, believed to be somewhere between 742 and 735 B.C. Uzziah had reigned for over half a century, 52 years to be precise. It was a time of prosperity and peace and abundance in the land. But as one commentator says, increased wealth had brought a diminished view of God so that people felt secure in their sins as long as they performed the appropriate rituals. As long as they checked off the right boxes, they didn't concern themselves too much with their sins. They minimized those and, and went through the steps that they thought were necessary to make sure they were okay. But here Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord as He is, high, exalted, sitting magnificently on a throne. Isaiah in verse 5, calls him the king, in contrast to Uzziah the king. God is the king. Uzziah was just a king among many earthly rulers, and one who had died at that. But God is the king, and Isaiah 
sees him. He, he tells us that God's presence was manifest there. It was everywhere. The train of his robe filled the temple. His presence was everywhere apparent. There was nowhere it was not. And in a very real way, God's presence is still everywhere apparent in our world if we have the eyes to see it, if we're looking, if we're paying attention. Isaiah was, and we see in his account that the Lord rules over the heavenly creatures. In this case, it's these seraphs. They're first mentioned in verse 2. And they uh, do the bidding of God. Now, in the scripture, we read of different sorts of heavenly creatures. We read about the cherubim and the seraphim. You sang about those earlier. Uh, those are just the plurals of seraph and cherub in Hebrew. Uh, this is the only place in the scripture where the seraphs are mentioned. The cherubs generally get more press. But whatever the case may be, God rules them all. God is sovereign over them all. They do His bidding and they do it here. And what they do is cry out to one another about the holiness of God. In fact, they say God is the holiest. In Hebrew, there's not an, a, a superlative. The way you express a superlative is a threefold repetition, which is why they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. There is none more holy. He is as holy as you can get. The late Philadelphia pastor James Montgomery Boyce once spoke to a discipleship group about the attributes of God. And he began by asking them to list God's qualities in order of importance. And so they did. Once they tallied them up, it came out to love at the top of the list, followed by wisdom, power, mercy, omniscience, and truth. And at the end of the list, they put holiness. That did surprise me, Boyce later wrote, because the Bible refers to God's holiness more than any other attribute. The Bible doesn't generally refer to God as loving, 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 does it? I mean, we don't read that anywhere, or wise, 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 or omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent. There's just too many syllables to do that. It's holiness. God is holy. The Bible speaks of His holiness. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find heavenly creatures calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We worship God in His holiness. There is no holiness beyond His holiness. Way back in the Dark Ages, when I took Hebrew in seminary, I had to write a five-page word study research paper on the Hebrew word kadosh, which means holy. And the root meaning of that word is to separate, to cut off, to distinguish between, to differentiate. It indicates God's otherness, God's distinction. He is different from anything else. There is nothing else like Him. He is holy. And His holiness is derived from His power, His position, His knowledge, His nature, but nothing more so than His righteousness. 
That's what makes God ultimately holy. God is not like man. He is not stained by sin. He is not marred by misbehavior. He is thoroughly righteous, and thus He is holy. Through the prophet Hosea, God says, I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. And the external manifestation of His holiness is glory. The uh, seraphs say, the whole earth is full of His glory in verse 3. In the New Testament, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. The whole earth is full of His glory. These invisible qualities are clearly seen in God's creation, Paul says. Again, the question is, can you see it? Are you paying attention? Are you looking? Do you have the eyes of faith that see God's fingerprints everywhere in creation? Uzziah, the king, had died. The earthly throne was empty. But Isaiah wants us to know that there is a heavenly throne that will never be empty. And there is an eternal king who will never die. The everlasting one, the Lord of hosts, the king of glory. Israel's greatest earthly king was the poet David. And... I like what he says about God's holiness and glory, His majesty, in the closing verses of the 24th Psalm, where Isaiah says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even be lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And Isaiah saw Him. And because of that, Isaiah saw then himself in a way he had never seen himself before. You know, whenever I get a new white dress shirt, whether I buy it or Paula gives it to me as a gift, the first thing I do after I take it out of its package and iron out the creases is take it into my closet and hold it up beside my other white dress shirts. I don't do this to make them feel jealous, (laughs) though I suppose it may. I do it so I can tell which of my white dress shirts aren't as white as they used to be. You know, they all look white to me, especially hanging there next to the blue ones and the checked ones and the patterned ones and all of that, until I look at them beside a new white dress shirt. Then I can see which ones have lost their luster, so to speak, because of their frequent washings and launderings and so so forth. 
when Isaiah saw God in all of His exalted righteousness and holiness, Isaiah suddenly saw himself in a different light. Alongside God's righteousness, Isaiah was able to see his own sinfulness more clearly than he had ever seen it before. And it shocked him. It terrified him. It scared him right down to his socks. In comparison to God, that's how we all look. To what or to whom are you comparing yourself? If your assessment of yourself is a bit too high, then you're not comparing yourself to the right person, if you will. Only after seeing God as He really is can we see ourselves as we really are. And if your vision of God looks a lot like you, then you're not seeing God as He really is. You're seeing God as you want Him to be. You have recreated God in your image rather than allowing yourself to reflect the image of God. But Isaiah saw God as He really is, and he was distraught. He was heartbroken because he knew that sin could not continue to exist in God's holy presence. Woe to me, he said, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isaiah was expressing the depth of his sinfulness. He knew that he was unclean and unfit and unworthy to exist in the presence of a holy God. Isaiah saw his sin clearly, but, but he confessed his sin openly. That's the key. He acknowledged it and confessed it. The late psychiatrist Scott Peck, as he interacted with patients, clients, research subjects, he, he saw evil, he recognized evil, but he didn't quite know what to call it until he converted to Christianity. And then he dedicated a lot of research on the subject of evil, including writing a book entitled People of the Lie. The Hope for Healing Human Evil. And Peck finally decided that evil is the refusal to tolerate one's own sense of sinfulness. He said, the central defect of evil is not the sin, but the refusal to acknowledge it. Refusing to acknowledge that we have fallen short in any way whatsoever. We see a lot of that in our world today. But in God's presence, Isaiah found it impossible to refuse to acknowledge his sinfulness. It was too obvious. It was too overwhelming. And one day each of us will stand before God the way Isaiah saw him. And it will be impossible for us to deny our sinfulness. There won't be any pleading the Fifth Amendment in God's court. We will have to own our transgressions as Isaiah did. He readily confessed his sin. But notice what happened after he did. 
After Isaiah confessed his own sinfulness and inadequacy before God, his sin was cleansed in verses 6 and 7. He was cleansed by a coal from the altar put to his lips. From the altar, that is not insignificant, brothers and sisters. An altar is a place of sacrifice. There is no painless cure for sin. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a foreshadowing of God's perfect sacrifice in His Son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Sacrifice is necessary for the cleansing of sin, and God has provided the sacrifice for us. There is a world of meaning, a richness of theology in this text that we have to open our eyes if we're ever going to see and understand. The English Old Testament scholar H.H. H. Rowley said of Isaiah, He who a moment before felt that in the presence of the holy God sin could not exist and that therefore he must perish with his sin, now felt that he was separated from his sin so that it alone might perish and he might live. This is the opportunity that is ours in Jesus Christ. Our sin was nailed to His cross so that now we can live in the presence of God. Isaiah saw God which caused him to see himself, but then he saw also his people. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He saw their sin. And as a result, he saw their need, the need that they had to catch a glimpse of God and repent. He heard God asking, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? In verse 8. And Isaiah responded immediately, Here am I, Lord. Send me. Whenever we truly experience God, and, and see Him as He is, ourselves as we are, confess our need for Him and experience His forgiveness. Whenever we truly worship Him, there is a demand for response, a demand for service, for action. Isaiah felt it. He felt it keenly. He heard the voice of God once his ears were unplugged by his sin. And he responded, here am I, send me. Now his mission was not one anyone would envy. But he was prepared to take it on because of what God had done for him. The late seminary, Southern Seminary Old Testament professor Paige Kelly said, Isaiah was so overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude that he was willing to place himself completely in God's hands. God had taken care of his past. God could have his future. And so Isaiah gave it to him. And God told him, Isaiah, it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. Isaiah's job was to proclaim judgment on a hard-hearted and uncaring people. And in verse 11, Isaiah asked for how long? How long do I need to do this? And God responded that 
he would have to continue until the judgment was complete. But he did. Isaiah was faithful to his mission, and Isaiah was honored as a result of it. He is known as the prince of the prophets in all of the Scripture. In fact, the words of Isaiah are quoted more frequently by the New Testament writers than any other Old Testament writer is quoted. Isaiah was faithful. He offered himself to God and God used him. Are we being faithful to the mission that Christ has given us? To go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teach them what it means to be a follower of Christ. Are we fulfilling that mission? to show God to a lost world so that they could see their sin, be convicted of it, confess it, repent it, and be saved? Are we showing God to our world, faithful to the mission Christ Himself has given us? Are we showing God as He is to the world? Or are we showing Him the God we've created ourselves in, His, in our image, the selfish God? instead of the selfless God. Before we can show God to a lost and dying world, we have to first see God ourselves as He is, holy, righteous, just. We have to peel back the scales that cover our pampered American eyes to see the living and true God whose handiwork is all around us. We have a lot in common with those wealthy Israelites who because of their wealth had begun to feel so self-sufficient that their view of God had diminished. Their sense of their need for Him was no longer sharp. And they had to be judged as a result. Are we on the precipice of the same thing? We have to scrape away the calcified, ossified layers of our hearts so that we can once again sense the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our own lives and see God and hear God. And when we see God, we will remember the tremendous sacrifice that God made in His Son, Jesus Christ, for us to cleanse us from our sins. And the resulting awe and gratitude and thanksgiving from that realization will compel us to say, God, here am I. Send me. I'm yours. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess to you this day our sin. We are pampered, we are wealthy, we are comfortable as a people. And it has caused our understanding and vision of you to be diminished, lowered, devalued. We think we can take care of ourselves. We think we can do it ourselves. Forgive us, God. 
reveal yourself to us. Through the eyes of our faith, may we see you as you really are. May we be humbled by that. May we be drawn to confession and repentance in the promise of your word that if we do, you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, just as you did with Isaiah. God, call us to yourselves now. Empower us to reveal you to a world that so desperately needs to see you as you are the holy God, the righteous God, who is also the loving and gracious God. Make it so, God, in our lives, in our church, in our world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation and response.